This is episode 65 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the founder and CEO of QED, Dr. Russell Thackeray. Let's get it started. Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Love to have you here for episode 65, where I sit down with a UK-based licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Russell Thackeray. Had a really neat conversation uh, with Dr. Thackeray just about you know overall organization, some of the pitfalls that they're having and some of the ways you may look at it from an individual standpoint as well as team performance to kind of improve that. Uh, and it was really interesting actually to talk about his journey and how he was a you know classically trained uh, musician, was doing that professionally, and then obviously had this big shift. So we actually talk about that dynamic a little bit as well. I know a lot of folks listening have that same, um, that same kind of conundrum, I guess, in life. I, I went through it where you change careers and you kind of have that's what you are known about or known for, and then obviously you go and do something a little bit different. So we dive into that dynamic a little bit as well. But let me give you the quick bio um, before we jump in here. So as I said, Dr. Thackeray, he's a, he's a UK-based licensed clinical psychologist. He works both obviously with individuals and organizations to drive change and achieve their goals by building accountability and resilience. He's the founder and CEO of QED. Um, you can check out their website, qedod.com which is an organizational development consultancy that helps organizations improve people performance and business value. Again, really cool interview. I think you guys will absolutely enjoy some of the uh, topics we get into. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. And my chat today with Dr. Russell Thackeray. Let's get it started. Russell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Brian, it's a delight. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, excited to get a chance to uh, to pick your brain on some things, especially with a lot of the work you're doing with different organizations of different sizes. And I thought we'd start though, as, as I kind of like to do, as a lot of folks know that listen in on this, is I'm I'm curious about your journey a little bit because obviously what what you're doing today did did you always want to? I and mean, obviously being and maybe give a quick background if you wanted. I, I always do a prep before the call or before we, we launch the interview, but you know with your background as a clinical psychologist and, and doing some of those things, is that what you always want to do when you were kind of your journey, your upbringing, or did you have a total different mindset of like, here's what I wanted to be as I grew up, quote unquote. Okay. Well, that's it. That's a great question to start and, and shut me up. And I start wanging on too much for you because um, I do get passionate and interested and carry on. But um, my very first career and the thing I wanted to be ever since I was very small was a professional musician. And, what kind uh, of music? Well, I was a classically trained musician, and I was, in fact, for many years, a professional viola player. I played in, um, I was a freelance musician, so I played across uh, many of London's best symphony orchestras. I played in the West End of London. I played all over the world for various different um, organizations or orchestras. I did backing music for um, actually Shirley Bassey and people like that. And as a freelance player, I did all sorts of session music, recorded film music and all sorts of different things. 
And um, as a as a freelance player, of course, you are self-employed. You are a, a craftsperson in a sense. You work as if you were uh, making a piece of furniture. You are going out, and every time you play a note, you're earning uh, you're earning money. And uh, you're trained at a very high professional level to play concertos and such like. And then you spend most of your time in the West End, basically carrying bags of concrete around. You know, playing the same show night after night after night after night. And I got interested in the whole subject of resilience and mindset really back then. You know, that idea of you're going to go to work and you're going to do the same thing day in, day out, whether you want to, whether you can, whether you're sober, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether you just had a baby, whether you're you're miserable, whatever it is, how do you actually perform at a sort of systematically um, consistent level? Have the grit and the determination just to deliver what you need to deliver. And that taught me a lot. And I am a great believer now in my sort of fourth career that, you never stop learning and actually everything you've done in your past allows you to really be the sum total of who you are and um you know in, in, in a strange sort of way now running a small business the challenges are the same finding work delivering work maintaining excellence coming up with something different being at the master of your craft as it were and um um, so, no, I started off wanting to be a musician, and those things are so, somewhat different now, um, and that's that's what I started doing. For many, many years, I was a professional musician, then I went into the business side of music, then I went into business, and I worked in the worlds of recruitment and the worlds of automotive, and worked in sales and marketing, um, then branched into organizational development and psychology, because sales and marketing is all about getting people to change their minds, to change their behaviors, to change their attitudes and purchasing decisions um, as you can imagine and then I went into operational management and found that a real challenge this idea of scaling an organization not having the levers of paying for results you know having people like accountants who actually weren't interested in you know being incentivized to work they just wanted to do a good job and I ended up as the CEO of a law firm in the UK and that was fascinating and then joined a management consultancy as a sort of an operations and sales and marketing director and then eventually became a consultant then started my own training business, grew to one of the largest training businesses in the UK, sold that a couple of years ago, two or three years ago now, and came out my own. And uh, now work as a, an organizational and development psychologist and um, specialize in the areas of leadership, tough love leadership, resilience, burnout, maintenance, and um, get involved as a non-executive director and a trustee of charities, helping people start things up and and work with large organizations as well, changing culture and doing all sorts of different things. So I, I tend to actually do now what I did all the way back then. When I have to decide what work I want to do, I decide if it's fun, if it's intellectually challenging, or if it's stacks of money. And they're the three ways that I sort of um, think about the work I do, how I choose what I'm going to do, who I'm going to work with. And that's what I did as a music, musician as well. So those those lessons I learned at the age of 18 and 19, 20, 21, one as, are those that I carry through to this very day. And I think uh, entrepreneurs um, let go of their past. And um, and that sometimes I think that's a real mistake because sometimes who you are today is based on what, what you were yesterday. And, and recognizing yesterday is a really important be, part of being entrepreneurial. If we can talk for a minute, I'm going to take a, a slight, you know, I'm going to turn the uh, the, the signal on and, t- and take a, a right-hand turn for a second because something you said there may, reminded me kind of of myself when I was back. So I used to um, teach golf. So I used to be a PJ professional. I used to teach golf in my, in my former career, right, years ago. And one of the toughest things for me was the transition 
from leaving golf because everyone knew me friends family as like the golf guy right he was the teach professional whatever and actually do getting into sales and business and those type of things can you talk about like obviously you were a musician growing up and, and that's what you did was that a challenge to leave that and, and how did you overcome saying hey i'm not going to be a professional musician this was my passion i have to do something else do you remember the self-talk do you remember the the kind of internal struggles or conversations you had you know, that's really interesting, Brian. I'm fascinated you asked that question and to pick out. And, it be, and the biggest problems I had weren't with my own self-talk. It was with everybody else. It was that thing where everybody else was saying, why would you leave music? My parents would say things like, we sacrificed, you know, we spent lots of money. We didn't have holidays to fund your musical education. Now you're giving it all up. And, and, I, and I actually just sat down and did two things. I thought about music and I thought, there were two things about music which were true, and this might be true about golf because I did play golf a little bit myself, but just as a, an amateur. And a lot of time in the music department, in the music, in the music world, you're either bored stiff or scared stiff. And um, one of the things I decided was that wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. I wanted to do something that actually had a bit more meaning. So you weren't just playing a concert. No, that was it. That was it. And it was finished. Even if you, you know, recorded a disc. You know, it sort of, it sort of, you were never really pitching above your own sort of um, your level as yourself. And actually, I sat down and did some life planning. And I sat down with a coach and a mentor, and we worked through a series of um, exercises that allowed me to effectively work out the life I wanted to have. And, and then plot back and then say, which was the career that was going to get me there? And it became obvious that music wasn't the career that was going to get me there. And, um, and for me, then, it was a quite straightforward thing to say, well, how do I transition from one thing to another? And I'm not a big fan of going cold turkey and just giving up the whole of the music industry and saying, well, I'm going to now go and do something else. And it was like a sliding scale. As I turned one dial down, I turned another dial up. And I actually, um, and I, and I actually for a little while, I pinged backwards and forwards. I'd actually go and get a job in the real world. I'd work in sales and marketing because it's easy to work in sales because when I was selling vans over the phone is my first ever job and did pretty well because I didn't know that was hard. And then for one reason or another, that contract came to an end and I went back into music and then I went and did some more work in the commercial world and then went back into music. And at one stage, I was getting up, the, up in the morning at seven at the morning, driving to work, um, starting work at half seven, quarter to eight working till half past six at night, jumping in the car, driving from the South Coast up to London, getting changed in the car in on the motorway, going from a business suit into all blacks, getting to the West End of London, jumping into the pit, starting working at half past seven at night, finishing at 11 and driving home, and then the whole thing would start again. So there was a period where you were working pretty hard. And it's actually a certain after a certain amount of time, what you suddenly realized was that's not a lifestyle that's going to work because actually my wife and I at this time decided to start a family. And it was like, well, you know, something's got to give here. It's either going to be my sanity or my ability to actually have to spend some time. So I made the decision then having sort of seeded both beds to make sure that, um, you know, the, the one that I want to cultivate was the, the world of the commercial world. And, this, and the most sensible thing for me to have done was to have gone into the business side of music. And I had done a little bit of that. But just frankly, the rewards weren't big enough. And I was suddenly finding intellectual challenge and fun and money coming out of the commercial work in a way that wasn't coming out of the music industry. And in a way, you know, I chatted to people then when I was, this is 25, 30 years ago, you could see how music was going to end up. And it's exactly how it's ended up today. And so I'm pleased I got out of it. That doesn't mean I'm out of it totally. And today I, 
um, you know, do a little bit of conducting. I'm, I'm working with a friend of mine, putting on some concerts, doing some promotion, working with a couple of charities. I use music as part of my psychological practice because obviously, you know, it gives me um, a unique selling point to have the business side of music as part of what I do. In the same way, you know, I should use golf analogies and such like as well because a lot of people are interested in it. So that's a long way around of answering your question to say that I tasted various various careers, various choices, then threw myself in, then worked like like mad, and then eventually let one go. So I, I remember someone very wise saying to me, "Don't don't chase, don't abandon where you are without knowing where you're going next." And I think that's what I'd done as I decided where I want to go next and be clear about it. And I wasn't going from self-employment to another set of self-employment areas. I was going into a job. And I think that made life easier for me. So, um, yeah. of, course, of course, later on, when I was, you know, when I left the big management consultancy, decided to go on my own. And then I was doing that. I was actually going into my own firm and uh, but building my own business from scratch. And and that's more akin to, and that was about, uh, that was two in the year 2000. So, you know, that was 17 years ago when, when we started the training company up. Okay. And can you go a little bit deeper and, and, and take it where you like, but, you know, we talk about that, you know, that professor, professional development, right? And from an individual standpoint, that the, the person, not just from a, a leadership or organization, is there anything that you said you kind of mapped out, hey, here's kind of where I want to go and, and you had someone help you. Is there anything that you could share, you know, maybe the folks that are listening that are just kind of meandering in the water, right? And they're like, I don't know really what I'm doing. I kind of show up to work every day and, you know, they're kind of living for the weekends and those type of things. Anything you would share, anything that you've learned that might be helpful for them to, to kind of refocus or change their mindset on, on how to think for their future? Yeah. Okay. That's a great question, actually. And I think the 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 um, the example you gave, which is meandering, meandering around at work, being dissatisfied, is not a reason to become an entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneur, you know, we have to define entrepreneurs differently. There's self-employment or freelance work where you work for yourself, and you know, basically, you you leave work and you do whatever you did before, and you get paid by the hour. And it's building a business which doesn't need you to be in it and something that you create independent of yourself that you can sell. And I think if your motivation is I don't like what I'm doing, then that's not a great motivation for becoming an entrepreneur or a freelancer. And I think a lot of people are quite struck by the sort of the fashion, the idea of entrepreneurialism, the idea of freedom, the idea of untold wealth and richness, riches. And actually, the only thing you really have as an entrepreneur is actually control. Now, for me, control and freedom is really important. And what I, what I did is when I rolled forward, I actually thought to myself, what is important about my life? And actually control, creativity, freedom is, is good for me. And actually, for, me, for my own ability to build a business, it held me back because I had too many ideas to actually ever build one great business. So, for example, if I decided to build a, the world's greatest yellow plastic duck, I would have had 43,000 different varieties of yellow and plastic and ducks because I have too many ideas to do that sort of work. And you have to know yourself. You have to build this self-awareness to understand what it is you're interested in, what it is you're good at, and then surround yourself with people who aren't good at the, who are good at the things you're not good, which means you've got to be humble enough to realize you're not great at everything. And I think the thing is, the motivation is uh, a negative one, which is I don't like this. The idea of being an entrepreneur isn't great. I think you should go and get another job. However, if you're passionate about wanting to have control, have um, a sense of self-determination, you're comfortable with risk, 
and you're going to work harder than you've ever worked before, then start thinking about running your own business or being a freelancer. Because when you first step out of being a freelancer on your own, you're going to do everything. And there's going to be nobody else to manage you, to tell you what to do, to hold you accountable, to pick you up, to change your mindset, to pay the bills. It's all going to fall on you. So when I started to do the life planning, one of the things I started to do is very common exercise out there on the internet. There's three simple tasks, one which is to look backwards in your life, find out the patterns, where you're good and strong, what you're good at, what you like, what your what what your passion where your passion seems to sit, almost like a pattern. So think backwards, you know, five and five year increments and sort of note maybe high points and low points, high points and low points, and find out what's common about the low points and the high points. And then you find out something about about yourself. And I realized that all my low points were where I was being really restricted and having my wings clipped and having to conform, having to, um, you know, to really do as I was told. And all my high points where I was being creative and energized and, you know, setting myself free. And that's an important place to start. Um, I, think there's, um, I think there's a bit of software called, um, oh, what's it called? Visual, the Rockets, Rocket Stuff which is good for understanding whether you're an implementer or a visionary, and that helps you do that sort of stuff. And also there's a lot of um, there's a lot of exercise about looking forward in increments, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years forward, and just saying where do you want to be, family-wise, lifestyle-wise, health and fitness-wise, career-wise, social standing, all those sorts of places. And, yet, and in a sense what you do is you plot out all the things you want to do, be, have in your life, and then you sort of organize them across the structure of your life. And then the last thing you do is, well, actually, how much money do you want? What's important to you? Where do your values sit? Now, there are a lot of people out there in the world who want to earn a million dollars because when they have a million dollars, it means they can buy the latest sports car, which means that you've got a different motivational vibe from someone else who says, I want to make a difference in the world and I'm prepared to walk walk everywhere because actually I can make that difference on you know turnover of $60,000, $70,000 a year. And I think sorting out your values, building your self-awareness, figuring out what you want, what the shape of your life wants to be like allows you to understand actually the drivers and the commercial sense that you want to make of your own life. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and actually on that, you know, maybe it's just me. I, you know, you kind of see stuff on Instagram or whatever, like a lot of just people just seem unhappy. They seem like they're trying to, as you're saying, chase the dollar or chase like, hey, this person looks like they're having a lot of fun because they posted this great Instagram photo or whatever. And the reality is that's not the, you know, that's not the case. Um, I know you talk a lot about some of the things that you work with individuals about, you know, managing stress and anxiety and, and what have you. Is there any, um, any habits they should look at maybe trying to form or maybe things that you found that are helpful to help people try to get over the hump and become a little more fulfilled in life, become happy or certain, you know, angles they should take, if you will. Yeah. Well, the first thing to realize about happiness, and this is not a popular view, but it's true, is that happiness is inside your head. Happiness is a choice. Enjoyment is a choice. Um, you know, I remember going, taking my kids somewhere one day and we had a, you know, we went to the park and um, it rained and um, you know, the hot dog stands were shut and we came back and they said, oh, dad, that was a terrible day. And I said, I oh, know, but I really enjoyed it, didn't you? He said, how do you mean? I said, because enjoyment is the choice you make about the life you want to leave for yourself. And I think if you spend a lot of time looking at envying somebody else's choice, you're putting your happiness in the hands of somebody else. And most people, if they've got time to be posting stuff on Instagram, aren't living a life anyway. They've usually copied it from someone else. And I think the visceral experience of living your life is much more important than, than looking at somebody else's. 
And um, what we get is a little tiny dopamine hit every time we look at Instagram, see something that we think looks nice, and then put something up ourselves and somebody else tells us that's nice. And we can have that oh, dopamine shot from um, Instagram, someone's telling us to like our post, and we get exactly the same little shot of dopamine in our brains when we go out and win a, win a deal. You decide which you'd rather have, the deal or the hit on Instagram, because it's the same dopamine shot. And it just, therefore, it makes you think, well, actually, where I decide to put my effort and attention is the place where I'm now going to get my reward. And actually, the thing I've figured out most of all, and I think most entrepreneurs will tell you that, that they just see money as a sort of, a, it's just a metric. You know, we don't we don't really think that much about money. You actually think more about how you <laughs> minimize your expenses and such like than you do think about how much you're going to earn every single year. And and what you're really doing is you're, you're thinking about the journey. You're actually enjoying the process of running a business. I mean, you, this morning I had a meeting with one of my colleagues and I've got a bunch of stuff around replumbing re our website. Now, I should really pass that off to our website developer, but you know what? I'm going to thoroughly enjoy doing that. So I'm going to do it. Maybe I shouldn't, but I enjoy the process of running my business. And that's really, really important because if you don't enjoy running your own business, if you don't enjoy the business you're in and running it, well, you know, there's no satisfaction going to come from earning money. You may as well be working for somebody else and getting health benefits and not having to work so hard. Because actually, you know, running your own business, and if you don't enjoy the process of doing it, and you're always looking over your shoulder and envying somebody else, we'll go and get a job where you can do that, where that suits your, that sort of personality type. I think it's, uh, I can't remember, I think it's Gary Vanacek who always bangs on about this idea. We, are you better off being number 320 in Facebook or number one in your own business? You know, because you earn a heck of a lot more on Facebook and actually you'll have a lot less work to do and you'd be better off, better looked after and you might need a manager and you might be fulfilled and have work-life balance because, you know, we don't get that as entrepreneurs and that's great. That's part of the fun and excitement. And well, I think, and I think it, yeah, you're right. And that goes back to, you know, Gary, obviously I've been following Gary for a lot of years and I love that you brought up that quote because, yeah, and that, I think that's part of that self-awareness, knowing who you are and it's okay Everyone wants the glamour, I think. But yeah, if you want to dig down deep and you want to get on that journey and, and you love that process of kind of being in the shit, if you will, uh, then that's great. If you don't, there's nothing wrong with working and building an organization and helping others build their organization. I think figuring out, yeah, right now there's a lot of that muddle period because I, I think Gary is the one that says this a lot. is like, you know, entrepreneurship is kind of sexy nowadays. You know, 20 years ago, it wasn't. 10 years ago, it wasn't. And now everyone, you know, that's kind of the thing. So no, Brian, I, think, I think you've and I think you've hit on a point which I don't think Gary covers off enough either, because it's, it's it's a bit like him saying he curses a lot, and um, but then doesn't do anything about it. We can all be self-aware, but you've got to do something with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you know, for example, I've worked out I'm very creative. So actually, what I say to myself is, I can spend all my life being really driven and entrepreneurial and doing one thing and being miserable, or actually, I can set a business up that allows me to be myself. And I've and I've worked in a, a business before where I had another director, and the idea was that he and I were the yin and yang. You know, he was very organised and and thorough and methodical, and I was going to be all over the place having ideas. But, but it, sort, it sort of didn't work out because actually his, his methodicalness squashed my creativity. And we had a number of ideas that were got rid of simply because actually um, they were talked down. And I think sometimes you have to figure out who you work with and how, who you have in your tribe alongside of you. And that's not just about self-awareness, that's about the awareness of other people and, and then what you do with that. Because you can be as aware as you like, but if you don't do anything with that awareness, it doesn't matter.
And that's yeah, what we call it. That's emotional intelligence. That's actual emotional intelligence, not the stuff that Gary talks about, because his is only part of the story. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and you, you touched on something there. Well, let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute is around, you know, kind of yourself and, and as you're kind of growing a business and those type of things. When you work with other organizations to try to help them out and improve, are there certain and I, I don't want to use the word constant, but I will for lack of a better vocabulary. Are there certain constants you see from business to business that are not up to par or that are not succeeding? Like, do you see the same kind of failures um, or, or points where you can look at to say, hey, this is where the the kind of the critical mass where this is this is going to fall apart? Um, well, uh, <laughs> how long have you got to answer this question? Um, <laughs> um What's interesting is that I, I go into lots of different organizations in different countries and, uh, I'm, you know, I really enjoy what I do and I work uh, at different levels in organizations, often going in through HR, training and development, often going in through operations, sometimes going in at C-suite level. And it never fails to, I never fail to be amazed that the more senior you get in an organization, the less development you have. And so it's often the people at the top who are the least developed. And and um, and I also see on a regular basis that um, some of the people that are meant to help you internally are the part of the problem. So normally, when you've got a big internal comms department, it's because you've got a problem with internal communications, not because you're good at it. And and I often think that you know sometimes you need to build you need to build a culture where you can have conflict, you can have diversity, you can have difference, not in terms of ethnic uh, counting. But in terms of actually challenging robust adult conversations, and I think we have a move at the moment in our, in the commercial world, where because of this lack of development, we're having a situation where we have fewer good professional conversations because of our lack of accountability. And what that means in practice is, managers can't have professional conversations with their man- with with team members because they're frightened of hurting their feelings. And we're building a culture at the moment now, everywhere I go, where is where it's actually okay to allow a poor performance because we're frightened of hurting people's feelings. And for me, what you'll often hear is managers talking to their children on the phone, saying things like, little Johnny, you're 11 now, you should be all grown up and act like a big boy. And then they'll sit down and talk to their members of staff and say, well, I can't tell you this bit of feedback because you might be sad. So we're treating staff members like children and children like adults. And and I, I'm sort of ripping my hair out at this and thinking, where did this come from? Um, because it's our generation that seems to be propagating it. You know, we can't blame the millennials because they're, they're sort of acting out, as it were, in this way. And, and, you know, it's almost like businesses coalescing into very accountable um, sort of organizations. And these, this, these, these organizations where performance is, is okay, as long, lack of performance, I should say, is okay, as long as we're all happy. And... I forget someone who said that um, engagement without accountability equals entitlement. And I see entitlement as being rife. And, and, I, think, and I think it's, where did this come from? I, you know, I'm, quite, I'm quite perturbed. And, and I think some of it goes back to um, the rise of some more esoteric leadership ideas. And some of it goes back to the failure of human resources as a, as a function. And it goes back to obviously employment law, which is that it's, it's not, what mat- it's not what matters what you say, it's how it's interpreted that seems to be getting in the way. But I think what we've done is we've sort of lost something with this idea that um, pro, you know, um, robust conversations, professional conflict, professional d- disagreement doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to get bent out of shape. Now, 
And, 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 it, and I'm, I'm working with a small startup at the moment of three people, and I've been called in as a mediator because they've all fallen out because one person's had a conversation, picked up someone's performance, and the other one's got off sick, sick with stress for two weeks because they didn't like the, they didn't like the, way that, the tone of the voice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have, have things where I pick up a, an issue where someone looked at me funny. Looked at, I mean, looked at, what does that even mean? And I think actually it's a really peculiar thing because we're building businesses almost with the seeds of our own downfall in. Because if we can't have robust conversations with our members of staff and employees, what's going to happen when we have robust conversations with customers? Does that mean that we shouldn't um, ask for discounts because our customers might be sad? Or we shouldn't negotiate um, a better deal because our um, suppliers might be sad? It doesn't make sense. Do you know what I mean? And this is why I think this idea of resilience is really important, this idea of accountability, building professional, robust relationships. Where you can, I mean, I read a book recently called Radical Candor, where the candor is neither candorous nor radical, because actually it's the same idea that we should treat people like children. And we have to get away from this, I think, and treat people, back again, like adults and have this honest... honest. Yeah, and I, I see this a lot. I mean... I, yeah, and I and I see this a lot. I mean, in, yeah. in my role, you know, I'm in a in a, a sales role okay. at a great organization, but I see this even where, yeah, and I don't know what it is. And, and again, I don't know if it's it's the the social media world we live in, where maybe years ago it was, and I, you know, maybe I'll I'll, I'll see my dad soon, maybe I'll ask him or something. Like back in you know 20, 30, 40 years ago, like was it the fact of you went to work and you might've been an a-hole, I don't know, but you got your work done. You weren't, you weren't like actually that, but you were hard on people because you wanted, you know, certain things. And then you went home and you didn't really talk to those people. You kind of had your own world. Now everything's so interconnected where I wonder if people feel that, Hey, I can't give this proper feedback because it'll hurt their feelings. And all of a sudden everyone's going to know and think that I'm some bad person. Like, I wonder if it's just the magnitude of how information travels now and and to your point, I mean, the whole Me Too movement and all these other stuff, and rightfully so, obviously, there's a lot of bad stuff that happened. But I think people are scared that if they say even the littlest thing wrong, now they have an HR violation, they have, you know, lawsuits at their hand. And, and it's almost rather, I'd rather just not say anything. Yeah, and ultimately, that does lead to poor performance, or someone that should have been let go or fired six months ago is still there. And they're kind of cancerous to the organization, if you will. And I think, and I think this is where we need to, you know, grow up and get a grip, frankly, because actually, Me Too wasn't about that. And I'm with you. I think Me Too is a great, a great. It's a, it's the chance to rebalance, you know. And if I'm, I'm a white guy, I'm a fifties, and you know, we've had a lot of white privilege and and um, such like for many, many years. And the fact that you know, two or three of us are going to get a bit bent out of shape because of doing things we shouldn't have done. Well, frankly, it's about time. And you know, we need diverse. Um, workforces that look like our customer base. So I'm, I'm all for that. But I think what's actually the, the root cause of this is, is context. And someone once said to me, it was a, I quite liked this idea. It was 50 years ago, you might walk, go out into the street in London and a bomb might be dropping down on your head because it was the middle of the Second World War. And now we get bent out of shape if someone doesn't like us on Facebook. And it's, it's, and it's context, isn't it? The context of our lives have changed. We've never been happier. We've never been fitter. We've never had more privilege. We never have greater wealth. We've, we've never, we've never had so few wars. And it's, and that's the point, isn't it? We've had no accountability that's not, that's gone with this. We've taken this as an entitlement. You know, it's, it's like, you know, people get hyper hysterical if their broadband breaks down for 10 minutes. I mean, right. you know, yep. that's exactly right. 
go and do something else. You know, there was a time when we didn't have broadband. And I think what's happened is we built an entitled culture where uh, it's okay not to have accountability. And for me, accountability is just action and learning. You know, it's not about beating people up. Um, and I think actually you can have good conversations with people who've been through the Me Too moment as long as it's focused on conversation. But if you build a culture where you build, where you grow victims because you act as a, you know, the, a bully, then you deserve everything you get. And that's why I think it's, it's very easy to build a culture that's that's good, it's fun, there's a lot of professional disagreement and debate, but then you all coalesce, come together, and you will head off in the right direction. I'm a real believer that most people come to work not to make the world a worse place, not to be difficult, not to swing the lead, not to try and rip the organisation off. You know, most people don't aren't like that, but we run the organisation as if everybody were doing that, which is a very old idea in terms of um, the psychology of how a business works. So it's it's time for us to re it's time for us as leaders and you know to reset this to reset the balance. And I know we're in a politically peculiar place in both countries at the moment, but that doesn't mean we can at, a, at an entrepreneurial level you, you can't create a culture that's really brilliant for your own people. And I, I worked in a management consultancy a few years ago, and um, it, um, I had a great boss. I was number two there, and um, I I was sort of the operations manager of the whole thing, and you know we had fun. We had different teams. They had different personalities. We had, um, we, 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 I mean, I still am in contact with people from those days, which is quite unique, really, because this is 10, 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, I'm the godfather of one of those people and, you know, one of the kids, and their kids are now, you know, in their 20s. And we stayed in touch because that was such a, a, such a great, it was such a great touch point where everybody came together and we built something, a great little organization. And it went off and the management chain changed and the whole organization changed and it scaled and it lost its culture and it went off and became something else. And that's okay as well, because sometimes, you know, cultures and, and, and the way you run organizations only work at certain sizes. You know, if you're, if you have 55,000 people and you're across 27 different companies, countries, you, you can't expect to be the same as three people in a shed somewhere. It's, it's not realistic. But it's, it's how you scale without losing everything. but And that's why you keep this sort of strong professional adult conversations in the middle of it. I remember years ago, I was working with the Telegraph newspaper, and um, which is a venerable newspaper in the UK. And, and the production director and the editorial director were telling me about how they often have stand-up rows, shouting and screaming and yelling at each other. Because actually, uh, a journalist will be, all, you know, obsessing about whether a word should be this word or that word. Meanwhile, of course, the production was directors waiting to press a button for the presses to begin to roll and the and the lorries to begin to take papers all over the place. Come four o'clock, that disagreement was gone. People walked away. It wasn't personal. It had been a professional disagreement. It had been loud. It had been noisy. But it wouldn't happen in today's world because it would have somehow become personal. Somehow someone had been get, got, got bent out of shape because we've lost this, the resilience toolkits to allow us to, to um, have those robust conversations where we look after ourselves and we are not as personal. I was watching a, um, a political dialogue today and in the UK, I think um, our soon-to-be ex-prime minister is going to talk about the nature of the political environment at the moment, how everyone's so hostile. And so uh, everyone's waiting to take offence. Everyone's therefore offending everyone left, right and centre. And, you know, someone's got to make the change. And therefore, we as entrepreneurs can do that in our own little businesses. We can build little havens of sanity.
Well, I think if you build that in, especially the transparency and the, the across, like we do this in our organization, very transparent with information and what's going on. And, and again, people are treated like adults. And, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, Ray Dalio talks a lot about this in his book principles and some other things he's done with, you know, the idea of meritocracy of like the best idea wins, right? We, we're not going to sit there. It's not going to be this ego, like, nope, I'm the boss. So we're going with this. It's like, we're going to go with the best idea and we're all going to actually act like adults and make this organization grow. Um, so it's kind of to your point there. It's like, yeah, at, at some point, I don't know what, when this happened. Um, and maybe it was just kind of a, a slow kind of uh, meander down the river of, of how this kind of worked. But yeah, right now with organizations, I see it kind of being in the thick of it. There's something that's going on where it's just not, uh, like I said, we, we just can't, for whatever reason, people just can't let well enough alone and say, you know what, it's not personal. It's just business. We're just trying to get better and not take it so you know offensive. And I think, and I think that's very interesting. We're putting it, Brian, and maybe that's the secret there. I think we've so become so obsessed with this concept of leadership over the last twenty years. We've forgotten that managers need to manage as well. So we've forgotten the skill sets of management, and we've become obsessed with values-based leadership, character-based leadership. Sometimes you just have to have sit down, have robust conversations with people, and say, "Look, this this is the number, and this is your number. Okay, so this is this is your output. So what are you going to do about it?" and you know, with the style, if you want to get bent out of shape, if you want to do it at the top of a mountain, you know, looking noble, whatever. But you still have to have that conversation. You still have to sit down with people and say, look, you've got all this potential. You're using, using a quarter of it. Um, you can use it here. You can go somewhere else. I mean, you know, it's not personal, is it? It's a conversation where you, you want the best out of people for you, for your, for your organization. Years ago, I used to work um, as a consultant for an organization that on the very, very first day of induction, they used to say to them, used to say to all the new intake of managers and um, computer developers, when are you leaving? And everyone used to look at them and say, what do you mean, when am I leaving? This is my very first day. And they say, yes, when are you leaving? Because the construct you want to build is that you know when you're going, so you use this organization as a place to get what you really want. And then for us, what that means is we're going to get your engagement and commitment, and we're going to ask you to do certain things, which means we have a mutual self, you know, mutual win-win psychological contract that means we both get what we want. And that and that's interesting, isn't it? Because so many organizations pretend that they want to keep people forever, and therefore people get locked in, and therefore people get disempowered, then people lose the ability to leave, and and therefore people get stuck. And then somehow at some point they get up and go gets up and goes and they're and they're no use and they're sort of more they're not great for either party then well yeah and there's also the you know the thing and again seeing this where people just they, they kind of just leave randomly right of like hey oh so-and-so's leaving the organization and it's like oh okay i can kind of see that coming i had this weird kind of to your point there i don't know if it's a weird idea maybe it's a something that'll catch on but you know I, as i always said you know as, as i you know run a business down the road it's it's going to be open where I want people to tell me, hey, listen, if you're interviewing or you want to leave, just come. I'll, I will help you get a job. I'll help you go somewhere else. Let me know. Like, let's let's do this together. And if you don't want to be here, it's just like a relationship. If you don't want to be in this, I don't want you to be in this. I don't want to force you. So if you want to leave somewhere else, I'll, I'll give you a recommendation. Um, and I think that ultimately, if you have that openness at the beginning, it sounds ludicrous, but I think that absolutely can can help people, and maybe they stay longer because they actually believe in. Well, you know, what's and that and that was the net effect because, of course, what people would say would be, you know, I've worked here for three years now, I've got all these skills, I'm really excited, I'm really developed, and then the manager would sit down with them and say, okay, then, so 
How's this? So, so this career of yours and where you're going with this career. So, um, how about staying here another three years and doing that rather than moving off with somebody else? And they say, well, hey, you've delivered every stage of the way, so let's do that. And it's eyes wide open. You know, I'm working with an organisation at the moment, or I'm aware of an organisation at the moment has decided to run a complete restructure because they want to lose two people out of their team. So they put um, a team of six, um, sixteen people at risk of redundancy because they want to get rid of two. Now, the net result of that is all 16 are unhappy, miserable. Half of them are going to leave. And of course, they're going to lose all the wrong ones because the managers were too spineless and gutless to have the, the, the professional conversation with the two that needed to have it. Because neither of those two people have had their performance managed ever, ever. Mm. And of course, that's a failure of management. And these people are going on leadership programs and sitting in, you know, um, you know sort of leafy hotels, listening to leadership stuff and how we should be our own authentic selves and blah 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 but you know sometimes you have to sit down talk to people and actually get them you know to have that to come to that point where it's it's not scary to have a conversation about your future you know i've i've i have been in that situation myself it's, it's not always pleasant but i'd rather i'd rather have an honest conversation with an honest manager than then have my, then have a whole department be reorganised because someone was too cowardly just to come and talk to me. And if you're going to be running your own business, you know one of the things you have to do on a regular basis, you have to take risks in hiring. You don't always get, you know, you're not GE. Sometimes you can't hire the person you really want, so you're hiring the person that has maybe the best of third best. And so you have to have a system where you bring in and you you make the most of the time you have together, and then you move on. And you know what I find is that sometimes people move on and then they go somewhere else. And they come back again. And that's great, isn't it? Imagine having that, 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 that sort of construct where it worked for a little bit of time and now it's not going to work and then something else will work later on down the line because we nearly always, well, we often staff our startups with people we know and you have to have that ability to say when you come in, look, it's, this is what it's like working for a small organisation. I can't guarantee you a job. But now, of course, people are going to massive organisations and they're discovering that they can't be guaranteed a job either. So I think as the world of work fragments, you know, for us and running smaller organizations, that's really good news because the flexibility and the impact you can make in a smaller organization with a good enlightened manager who can really manage is really, is really, is really something. I mean, we run a program called Tough Love Leadership and we talk about all the toughness and having these professional conversations, but you still got to love your people as well. You still got to, you still got got to want them to succeed because don't, isn't that mutual self-interest? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's some great great thoughts on that and, and insight and and yeah, I think there's a lot of things folks can do and everyone can't do everything right away. But let let's end on this because this has been this has been a great conversation and as, as usual, right? It went way off the rails early with the tangents, so uh, it's been fun though. Let, let's let's leave the uh, the listeners with with one thing, if you don't mind, maybe something they could do right out of the gate whether it's personal or it's something maybe if, if they're leading an organization, um, you can take either one or both, but something they can do maybe out of the gate over the next few days, week, month, et cetera, um, to maybe, you know, get in the right, you know, change their gear, if you will, um, kind of get in the right frame of mind. What, what would you kind of leave them on some advice? Everything in life, everything is your choice. So if it's not going the way you want, it's because you've made choices to either create that situation or view it that way. Everything is your choice. 
Short and sweet, Russell. I like that. This is awesome. Um, and and I think too, yeah. If if at the end of the day, right, it's a full of choices, and again, that goes back to the mindset we talked about a little earlier. You know, I think about it is, you know, I go into every situation trying to have that glass half full. You can have the glass half empty mentality, but if you glass have the glass half full, like you're saying, it's rainy in the park and whatever. Hey, if it's glass half full, we can really still have fun and we can do something that's you know magical, even though it may not be the best situations. And what's great is the, the the glass being half full or half empty is your choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you decide, and you decide and don't blame anybody else for your choices anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Russell, this has been great. This is, like I said, it was a, this is a fun little interview here because, um, like I said, it, it took a lot of tangents and uh, got a lot of great insight around, you know, personal and, and organizational development stuff. So thank you so much. Where can everyone find you online if they want to connect with you? My organization is called uh, QEDOD. Dot com. That's QED Organizational Development. Um, you can hook up with me at russellthackeray.com. And um, I'm on all the usual social media places, but I'm not as attentive as I should be. So li- probably LinkedIn is the place you'll find me where I do write and produce articles and such like. And there's all sorts of weird and exciting things we produce in terms of um, online and in-person training, coaching, development, and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. Awesome. Russell, thank you so much for being on today. This was a pleasure. Pleasure. No, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Brian. Hey, everyone. I hope you got a lot of value out of that episode. And just one more quick thing before you run along on your day. If you haven't been enjoying these interviews and these shows, um, I really appreciate it if you head over to iTunes, give me a rating, leave me a review, let me know how I'm doing. Um, It's the only way I can make this podcast better each and every episode. Um, And connect with me online. Um, at Brian Andreco or at Just Get Started Podcast on Instagram, or check out my website, brianandreco.com. Um, that's where I house the podcast, my blog articles. Um, I even have a now page to update everyone in the last couple months of what's been going on in my life. Um, at worst, it's for my mom so she can keep tabs on me and make sure I'm okay. Um, but I've really enjoyed the feedback so far. This has been phenomenal. Um, what's been accomplished so far with this podcast and all the great guests I've had and really excited for the trajectory going forward. And really, the gratitude goes to you guys for listening, for chiming in, for giving me feedback um, and for keep listening and keep pressing play. Um, obviously, you guys are getting some value out of this. So I'm so grateful for just the opportunity um, to share these messages with you. Um, so I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.